Hello and welcome to the podcast, What is the Future of Education? We talk with global experts across different domains of arts and sciences about how their work may shape education futures. My name is Dr. Natasha Latskovic. I am a scholar of educational research and the creative director of this podcast. As part of Lancaster University's work in social futures, kindly supported by the Faculty of Arts and Social Science. Your host today will be Elizabeth Cook, who is a senior analyst of strategy and performance at Edith Cowan University in Australia. She's also a postgraduate researcher on the program Higher Education Research, Evaluation and Enhancement with Lancaster University. Her PhD is developing a relational employability approach for universities. It's my great pleasure to welcome Professor Julian C. Chambliss from Michigan State University. Thanks for joining us, Julian. Thank you for having me. Before we get started, can you please introduce yourself and your work to our listeners today? Sure. I am a professor of English at Michigan State University. I'm also the Val Berryman Curator of History at the MSU Museum, and I'm a core faculty member in the Consortium for Critical Diversity and Digital Age Research which is called CEDAR here at MSU. And I'm also co-director of the Digital Humanities and Literary Cognition Lab in the Department of English. Wow, very broad. And I actually had a look at that Michigan State University Museum webpage. It's fantastic. I think I'll include that in the links for this podcast so that people can access it. Oh, please Yeah, it's do. brilliant. Yeah. Can you explain how does your work link to education futures? Well, I, I think as a professor, I put a lot of emphasis on open access and using digital tools to promote community engagement and community-based research and information fluency and knowledge integration and understanding of technoculture for students. So I approached that many times through a mix of popular culture or oral history, popular culture research, oral history practice, but also uh, making having students work in projects where they're taking materials from the archive or working with the community to produce something that is, on the one hand, from their perspective, a demonstration of learning, but on the other hand, from the perspective of the community, something that adds to broader understanding of a particular community's history or experiences or perspectives. Wow. That's so impactful. The students are really lucky. That's a really great form of service learning, really, isn't it? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things early in my career is that I was very much involved at the previous institution I worked at, a place called Rollins College, which is in Central Florida, with community engagement and understanding community engagement theory as a sort of practice and the the sort of difference between that and, say, surface learning. And some of that is, you know, those distinctions are about the ways that we understand how the structure of the class itself might be impacted by the work of that kind of experiential uh, community-based framework. And that was 
you know, very important in, in terms of allowing me to integrate things like digital humanities, but also to understand the ways that popular culture might be an avenue to think about and be in, in conversation with really big issues that matter to people. Yeah. Definitely. So how could your work inform the future of education? You know, I think obviously as someone who works at a public university in the United States, there's always questions about both the content that I'm teaching and the tools and experiences that students are able to achieve in the classroom. So, you know, from a content perspective, I teach classes about comics. I teach classes about Afrofuturism. I teach classes about digital humanities. These are really important topics. I sometimes joke with students, I try to make things that are really simple complicated and things that are really complicated simple. So when you're looking at popular culture, oh, I think I understand comics. Like, do you really? <laughs> it becomes a really complicated conversation. But when we're thinking about digital things, again, like, ah, this is super complicated. I'm like, nope, simplest tool is the best. It's really about the message. So let's think about that, right? And then, you know, interdisciplinary conversations like something like Afrofuturism is really important because it speaks to contemporary cultural concerns and the emergence of a kind of uh, different ideological paradigm that seeks to promote equity and care and those are all really important questions uh, that intersect with people's everyday lives but there are also questions where I think you know students are probably really important to build their capacity to understand absolutely what the critiques or what are the motivations represented by these thought patterns yeah because a lot of the problems that we have in the world are because people are focused on themselves not other people we want our graduate to be caring at the end of the day yeah I do think that that's a huge question and it's one where you know the turn towards what things like common core which are you know everyone should be able to do x and education is probably a little bit more complicated than that one of the the challenges i sometimes went out the students if the same things that happened to you in high school happened to you in college probably something's going wrong thought processes and the questions that we're asking you and there are not one path always to an answer and they're asking you to wrestle with theory and really think through the implication in terms of practice as a most societies do require a citizenry that is able to process and understand and especially you know we just came through a midterm election here as we're recording this and I sometimes talk to students about the reason that it's important for you to understand techno culture the reason that it's important for you to understand why you know something like Afrofuturism is so impactful is because you know these people these these ideas are really a direct sort of uh, point of contention about how resources are allocated how policies are created how practice this is is normalized and that's you know that's a civil society question and school is the place that you kind of build your capacity to make decisions yeah. If you can define, what is Afrofuturism? I define Afrofuturism as the intersection between speculation and liberation born of Afro African diasporic experiences. This could be expressed through uh, a number of different fields in science, technology, philosophy, theology. Uh, the contemporary Afrofuturism movement is really a kind of epistemological framework that's really trying to promote uh, a more equitable care-based system, uh, not just simply in the United States, but really around 
around the world. And so it is something that you can you can sort of see it in every kind of endeavor. But the thing that unify those different kind of endeavors is the way that they bring together this question of speculation towards liberation. And that's the thing that makes it so impactful for people. Are there any concrete examples or artifacts that you can talk about that raise important questions or might contribute to our thoughts and actions regarding education futures from your research perspective? Sure. You know, as someone who deals with digital humanities, I recently have for many years sort of worked with um, heritage communities or historically black communities, to be precise. And that work has been in particular sort of guided by the idea of trying to create what a colleague and I sort of have referred to as generative uh, reciprocity, meaning that like we're working very closely with communities using a kind of institutional position to create space to to document activities or to record and to document perspectives, doing things like oral histories, doing things like photo app archives. And in heritage communities, these things are very important because the perspective of marginalized groups uh, isn't always understood at some level, right? Because the push towards development, the push towards sort of economic transformation in these spaces, that becomes really the only way to understand these spaces. So, you know, I've said it before and I'll say it again, you know, black space is undervalued because of a kind of like broader set of social economic frameworks. And when that space gets gentrified, right, like when it gets bought out by white people, immediately that space becomes more valuable just because it's bought out by white people and they've displaced the black people. And so, you know, telling the story from the perspective of those displaced people, be they black or Hispanic or LGBTQ, all of which are, can be groups that are pushed out as space sort of transform for the marketplace. That is work that happens really working very closely with communities to document their experiences. Gives them, you know, important sort of tools because it, especially in the context of things that we do, the reason we talked about this sort of generative digital reciprocity is because, you know, when you're on the outside of the system, if you're just a person on the ground and you're telling your story, you're just telling your story. But when, you know, we go through this process of documenting communities creating oral histories, trying to contextualize these stories and add them to an archive, well, then they become a a resource that can be used in a more formal way because they actually have things like DOIs, right? They can be cited. And they're not the only thing that is transforming, but they become an important sort of resource that can be interwoven into other kinds of narratives. And that's really, really important. And so, you know, we, we put a lot of emphasis on that idea that, yeah, what we're trying to do is create a kind of digital infrastructure where people's information is there and it's documented and supported and it has that you know the value of that kind of institutional identity but also making sure that it's open and that you know the people and who are contributing to that access and able to use it uh, effectively for themselves and that's always a really complicated exercise but that that is something that pushes us me i think everybody who does that kind of work to think about the different ways that educational outcomes like educational outputs like what the final project looks like and, and who can use it and if the people involved have access to it, which are really, really important questions for us.
we collect a lot of user data. You know, there's there's various tools that are built into digital sites that give you tracking data and pretty much everything that we do, we can see downloads, we can see where, where people are, uh, who are engaging with it. And it becomes an important way to justify at the end of the year when you're doing your annual review, when you're academic, you know, you always have to like justify, like, what did you do? <laughs> and so, you know, that's part of the reason why we are always very mindful to have the analytics on yeah. right <laughs> i wonder if the analytics could be used to help work out a strategy for sharing those materials with areas of that you want to you know reach yeah you know it depends on the i think it depends on the project and with some projects you know we we conceive of them having an educational aim sometimes right so early projects that i worked on we would sometimes build into them educational components like common core things right so that it would be easier for teachers to use them but that, that was part of the goal of actually it being digital right if we're going to do this work of documenting community you know let's think about how especially K through 12 uh, because we were talking about heritage community I guess I'm not sure how that translates in in a primary school maybe I don't know primary and secondary k-12 is here yeah yeah um and and that becomes very important because as teachers in in that system have to kind of teach to the test it they don't necessarily have the same flexibility in terms of like how they want to explore topics anymore and so even if you're making something digital and like this is an important point to remember if you're thinking about this making something digital and you think oh i'm making this for the public there are a couple of things you always have to remember like one if you're thinking about oh this will be good for the class Classroom. If the teacher doesn't have an easy set of tools to make it applicable to their lesson plan, it's really hard for them to use it. Uh, having spoken to teachers and, and po- spoken to education professors, they're like, yeah, they just don't have the time to integrate something like yeah. they used to, right? Like that's one of the consequences of teaching to a kind of standardized assessment. And so when you're making this stuff, knowing that the standardized assessment, you ha- building a kind of like lesson plan that is based on a standardized assessment is a big deal and it's extra work because you kind of have to like go find an education person be like okay i really need to spit what does that look like and you know early on we really really thought about that that's great. If it's for the public, the multimodal outcome is really important. We used to, you know, 30 years ago, I think at this point, talk about the digital divide. And they don't really talk about it anymore, but it still technically exists. It's just the, the nature of the quality. And I always point this out to students. The most widely accessible digital platform is mobile. It's not desktop. So when you're designing something, you really need to design it to look good on a mobile device. Yeah. Functionality. And if you're dealing with, you know, uh, heritage communities, are outcomes that are simply digital good enough? Usually because of the, the age range of the people involved, it's not a great idea for it to just be digital. Usually there needs to be some kind of physical. And this is part of the reason that professors like Steve Lubar, who's at, you think he's at Brown, talks about the importance of art in public humanities work because what that does is that exhibitions and you know paper publications or posters and things like this you know it seems silly but a kind of poster that you can put on a wall somewhere that summarizes major findings is evergreen in a way that something that's digital is not from a community perspective right because you can frame it take it to the local church and just put it on a wall and it'll just stay there 
for years and years and years, where if you have something digital, unless it's in the right digital environment, it may not, well, you know, link rot, you know, that term, you, you build something digitally, digital preservation plan when you're doing digital things is really important. That's part of the reason why I put a lot of emphasis on working with library archive in my work, like the digital repository at my institutions, because those things have an infrastructure around them where things will stay. Whereas early in my career, I did projects that were WordPress projects. And while I crawled them, and if you go to my website, you can click on things like Project Mosaic and see a version of them. You're not seeing how it was when it was a live site, right? Because it was a WordPress site. And when you're doing digital things that are community-based, you kind of have to factor in what is your data preservation plan, yeah. which is a really complicated thing to imagine. And then on top of that, you have to factor in what is the data uh, dissemination plan, right? Like, you know, how are people going to see it? Uh, that's why podcasts are actually really good because you can make deals with the local radio station and broadcast a podcast. You can do all this stuff. And I've done that in the past. Like, we, I worked at a in Florida, our university, our college had a, a radio station. And while we were making a podcast, we'd often, you know, broadcast the podcast on the radio. Just so people who didn't necessarily have a ready access to a computer or were familiar with, with podcasting, which seems like, well, it's ubiquitous, but it's not exactly ubiquitous, right? Like you, you kind of have to know a little. Uh, whereas radio is, like regardless of social economic background, people tend to have radio. Yeah. And so if you can get something on the radio, it can be a huge deal in terms of like dissemination. So those are things that I think are really important to remember. Yeah. What would you imagine or create from Education Futures if you had endless power? like to do anything and why oh wow <laughs> i think i would put more emphasis on ironically smaller experiential based courses that are designed to allow students to work in concert with the community across time mm. Um, the reason I would say that is because you know, I think some of the, I don't think that students are inherently hostile to education. They're just pragmatic, right? Like, because yeah. they, they have a narrative that they're taught. Like, well, uh, I teach humanities. Humanities ain't, ain't going to give me a job, right? Right. So like, you know, when you're, when you're teaching a humanities course, you're always like, yeah, I'm going to go into business and you hear the students, I'm going to go into business and, I, and I'm just going to change the world. And like, yeah, I would just like to point out like a business degree is the most nondescript thing I can imagine, right? Like it's just, and if you talk to, to people in business, especially people in charge, they'll tell you that. Because like they, the number one thing they have to do is communicate, right? So like you're way better off having like a history degree or English degree or my God, studying the language because the people are like, oh, well, they can communicate, transfer information. Uh, and so like doing like art is actually good because like, oh, well, you know, this, you know, you can make charts and graphs. And so it's not like humanities doesn't, doesn't matter. Uh, and so, you know, part the reason my courses tend to be project-based is I always point out like this will actually transfer like you looking at a bunch of information and then trying to come up with like a coherent narrative really really very important and the reason I, I, I make the emphasis on so a community base is because like at some level you know one of the the challenges of contemporary education in the United States but I think it's globally is that for the people in charge the challenge of education is eternal right I mean the United States 
in particular, I'm a historian. By training, I've taught about the rise of a kind of alternative information ecosystem that was very important to more reactionary slash conservative communities in the United States coming out of the 1960s. And it's not like we don't know this, right? Like we historians have written about this, sociologists talked about it. And it's things like, hey, some conservatives, the narrative of the news did not fit their worldview. And so they just started producing alternative news work. They create organizations. They imagine a totally different world. They funded education that supported that totally different world. Like, so they create like a totally different educational ecosystem. So when you hear conservatives talk about how like education is bad, what they mean is education they don't agree with is bad. And then of course, when you marry that to like a profit motive, you know, they're super hostile to humanities because like, well, none of you guys were liberal. Well, that's because you don't teach kids who are conservative to value things that are profit driven, right? So it's not like, you know, like they complain about a world. I'm like, you, you made this world. Teach kids to value <laughs> humanity so they don't go into humanities. And then all the kids that think about things that are like not profit driven are in one place going like, wow, why are you so profit driven? Like I, you know, you want a different world, do different things, right? Yeah. I would just have more of that kind of stuff that we I try to do in classes where people are in conversation around real world problem there and they're trying to balance out the sort of academic frameworks in the context of how people are living, right? And I think that that becomes like a really important way to understand why some of these ideas that are highly theoretical that are being produced in the academy, why they exist, right? Like they exist in part because they are in dialogue with these concerns that people have and, you know, trying to find a middle ground around action and an understanding really probably has to start at school. I think, you know, the the assumption is that you are exposed to new ideas when you go to college is a little bit under assault, right? Like, because like, well, I don't like that idea, so I don't need to be exposed to it. I'm like, okay, but if you don't get exposed to it here, you don't build the capacity to understand, right? And so that becomes a huge yeah. challenge as you move into the real world where, you know, the people's idea, ideology is driving them in a way that is more pronounced than you may be prepared for. Yeah. School kids, sponges too, especially the younger ones. So that wouldn't that be the best time to get started with this? Yeah. Why we start so late is probably part of the problem as well. So what small steps do you think we should take now towards the, you know, transforming the future of education? Oh, wow. Big questions. <laughs> we yeah. ask the big questions in this podcast. <laughs> Well, funding is always a huge question yeah. in education. I was talking to a colleague just a couple of days ago, and the only, and I was joking, but it's true, the only people who are, are more early adopters than the education system is the military. Because, like, you, if you're in an education system, you need to buy the latest thing right away. And it costs a ton, right? You can't wait for the cost to come down. So it's just like the military. I need this bomber right now. <laughs> so, so I don't, I can't, yeah. I don't know, I just care, I don't care how much it costs. I want this bomber right now. I need to stay ahead of the curve. And we're exactly the same way. Yeah. Is that a liquid, blah, 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 blah? 
we need to have that because students need to use it so they know what it is. And you're like, that costs so much. If you wait five years, it'll cost half of what it costs or a third of what it costs now. Digital ain't free is something I, I talk to students about all the time. Digital does not mean free. It, there are costs. You just don't know, but they are there. Like it, it, all of it costs money. So I'm like, funding is like this fundamental question. And it goes across the system because like, I don't know any country on the planet that realistically pays teachers what they say that the importance of the work represents, right? Like in the United States, was, oh, teachers are so important. Teachers are so important. And then whenever teachers ask for more money, I'm like, you bastards. That's <laughs> the, the, you know, the cost question across the board, you know, lowering the cost for students, you know, keeping textbook costs low, using open access, you know, making sure that quote unquote public information or information derived from public funds is, is accessible as possible is, is always important. I mean, those are, that cost question is, is pretty fundamental. You know, a, a free and open public education system is a really important part of a democratic society. And like a lot of things over the last few years in the United States context, it's not as free as it used to be because of things like vouchers, right? So and if you don't like the school for various reasons, you can get a voucher in, in the United States and go off and go to a school that you do like, right? And a lot of times that removal of money from the public sphere to me is will not bear long-term positive outcomes. Like I understand why, you know, this this makes sense for parents and for groups that are advocating for it because they just like in the sixties when African American groups, you know, started creating schools because they felt like their children weren't valued in the public school system. They started doing community schooling and home schooling. But the voucher effort from more conservative borders isn't about the quality of schooling per se, although I know that rhetoric is there. It often closely intersects with the ideals represented by schooling not being what they want them to be, you know, and and so like to me like those are those are real questions. Obviously, in the United States context, like sort of charter schools and things like that. Not every case is a negative case, but I, you know, I it goes back to this question of funding. Are we putting enough money into public education that making sure that every student has the kind of support they need? I mean, and this is coming, of course, after a global pandemic, where I think people are hyper aware of the ways that greater needs related to education manifest themselves. I mean, you know, as I say, I work at a public institution. I deal with the sort of accommodations that students need coming out of the sort of realization of the kinds of pressure they've been under during the pandemic and like going to be like a wave that ripples through the system or really through society for, for the next few years because like, you know, you can't take people and put them in this super high stressful situation for two years and think like okay you can it's quote unquote over so they'll be okay like no they're not they're not okay they're there's they lived through a war or they lived through a thing and so now they're the person who lived through that thing they're not the person they were before the thing and like that's that's the truth like they're not the yeah. person they were before the thing so how are you going to handle the person in front of you and you know while we're doing it now give it a few years you'll be doing it in, in, in a business like this person does not like stressful situations like this person does not like blah 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 this person does not have x x kind of coping skills that they might have developed after not being in 
high school around people for two years and then coming to college and not it not going well and then getting out of college and still not quite going well right you know like a pinball machine like it's not quite going it's not everybody but it is some people you know those are real questions that people gotta ask yeah definitely the pandemic has heightened the division this has been such a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. It's gone a lot deeper than what I thought it would. Just to perhaps wrap up, what would be your final Education Futures message for our listeners? You know, education is a lifelong pursuit and supporting a system that makes that lifelong pursuit as accessible to everyone as possible is not a bad policy, right? So try to make sure that schooling, especially schooling for early age kids, because as you pointed out earlier, they are sponges for information, right? So giving those teachers, those professionals as much resources, the right class size and the right amount of time to do their work is really important and even as an adult you know thinking about the ways in the United States the public library system is a vital touchstone for so many people in terms of giving them access to information and you know so it's an ecosystem that we all kind of recognize that we take advantage of I mean I I check out books from my public library digitally all the time and and the library is an important resource for people at very different points in their lives right like if you're looking for a job if you're trying to learn about about things you know we forget how many classes and sort of little seminars that library provide they're very vital information that'd be very helpful for people and you know they need money to do that a community that's spread out the branch libraries not just simply the library downtown but the branch libraries are really important so like when you start talking about how oh, we need to cut budgets let's just close some of these branches I would argue hey you know if you thought about your your educational system like a circulatory system it would probably be a lot more you probably pause a lot more before you cut anything off i love that analogy <laughs> didn't you look wait do we want to cut off my leg wait no no i don't want to do that right like think about it that way and then go ask yeah. yourself like well what, what should we do here like that's a legitimate question absolutely ah. i love that that's so great thank you so much for your time today julian professor chambliss it's been fantastic i've i've learned so much and I will definitely include the links that we've spoken about and some of the others that you've provided to me in the podcast notes so that people can access them to also gain new knowledge about the great stuff you're doing with communities and with students. Oh yeah, no problem. Thanks a lot.